Now for Raising the Bar, Greater RVA's premier law talk radio show. Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366. All right, welcome. This is Raising the Bar. We are on each Wednesday morning from 8 until or 9 until 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm a little bit behind at this time. Trying, still trying to wake up. I don't think I've had my coffee this morning yet. I do have water, though. You can join the conversation. Our phone number is 454-1366. And we have a couple of very important topics today. We're going to talk about estate planning and also talk about having a will, no matter what age you are, even if you're in your 20s all the way up to uh, 90, you need to have a will. And we're here today with attorney Jeremy Pryor, who's located in the Fredericksburg area, but you also have an office in the West End of Henrico. Welcome, Jeremy. We're so glad to have you here this morning. Thank you, Tracy. Glad to be here. We're going to just throw the ball right to you. Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, as you said, my name is Jeremy Pryor, and I'm an attorney with the law firm of Carol Blanton Ferrison Associates, and we do have offices throughout the state of Virginia. We are in Richmond, obviously, Fredericksburg, Williamsburg, and Virginia Beach, and we focus as a law firm in mostly in three practice areas, estate planning, which is what we're going to discuss today, estate administration, and elder law. And as you mentioned, estate planning has a lot to do with wills and uh, trusts and powers of attorney and advanced medical directives. And hopefully this will be a good overview for your listeners about how those things work together, what you should have as essential, and some considerations that you may want to take into account as you're considering how to do your estate plan and different methods that you have available to you for estate planning. Sure. And real quick, the reason why we reached out to you is because you do uh, free seminars on a regular basis to public libraries around the Richmond area. Can you briefly talk about that? Yeah, we, uh, we like to do public education. We're, we're strong believers that those types of informational seminars can be really valuable for individuals who you may, may be trying to do their own research about some of these topics and there's a lot out there on the internet that you can you can find determining what's helpful information and what's not helpful and maybe what's relevant based on which state you're living in can be really difficult. So by having these public seminars pretty frequently, we try to do them at least twice a month uh, in the in the Metro Richmond area and as well as Fredericksburg and Williamsburg and Virginia Beach. But by doing that, we're hopefully educating people about what their options are. Obviously, we're also hopeful that we do a good job with those presentations and the people that come are interested in potentially hiring us to, to, to assist with those matters. But at the very least, we're, we're hopefully providing a good public service. And uh, if you're interested in getting more information about that, the schedule of all the seminars is on our firm website, which is uh, carolblanton.com. Carol is spelled C-A-R-R-E-L-L-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. And it's under the seminar tab. That's right. We have a seminar tab on the homepage and you click on that and then you should be able to find the uh, list of upcoming seminars for the next month or 
at least a month in advance. And you can join our conversation if you want to uh, have have any questions or any input for Jeremy. You can call him at 454-1366. Let's jump right into it, Jeremy. What is estate planning? Well, estate planning is fundamentally planning for two issues. Uh, The first concern that we're trying to address when we do an estate plan is what happens with your property at death. And this is the one that I think most people generally consider when they think about estate planning. People think, well, I've got to have a will because I've got to have a plan in place that's going to direct where my property is going to go upon my death. And that is certainly one big fundamental issue that you want to address when you do an estate plan. The other big concern that we're trying to address with an estate plan is what happens in the event of incapacity. So if you were not deceased tomorrow, but if you were incapacitated tomorrow, who would be able to step in and manage your affairs on your behalf, both uh, your legal and financial affairs, and then also make medical or healthcare decisions for you. So those are the two big fundamental concerns that you want to address when you do your estate plan. And who should do an estate plan? Well, I think the answer to this question is everybody, Uh, everybody over the age of 18. So uh, in Virginia, and I think every other state, uh, once you're over the age of 18, you're considered an adult. And that means that if you were to become incapacitated, nobody has the right to make decisions for you just because you're incapacitated. In other words, the only way that someone would be able to get that authority once you're over the age of 18 would be to go to court unless you've done a plan and you've already given that authority to people that you've chosen. And so when uh, I think or talk to people about, well, should I have an estate plan? I think everybody should, even somebody who doesn't necessarily have a lot of property, college student, just got out of high school, goes off for the first time. Uh, But there are issues that can come up if there were an an injury that led to incapacity. And even upon death, someone with you know, limited means, doesn't have a whole lot of property. That person still does have some property. That property needs to go somewhere. And if you're concerned at all about where it's going to go, then you need to have an estate plan in place to address that as well. And I think you talked about this a little bit earlier about, you know, money-wise. Is there a certain amount of money that you should have before you do an estate plan or does it matter at all? So I think that's a, a good question because I know that that's Obviously, when people start talking to lawyers and they think about hiring someone to assist with an estate plan, uh, they're going to immediately be concerned to, to think about how much is this going to cost and is it worth doing given the amount of money that I have or the amount of property that I, I don't have. And it's not uncommon for, I think, a lot of us to look at our estate or our affairs and say, well, I'm not a millionaire. I don't, you know, I'm not Bill Gates. I don't have a ton of money. So I really uh, don't know if I need to hire a lawyer to do my estate plan. Well, I think that that's a helpful question to ask, but, but not quite the right question to ask. So again, I would strongly encourage everyone to have an estate plan, regardless of how much money they have. I think the financial question is more relevant to the type of estate planning that you do. So there's a number of different methods or means to organize your estate, to do an estate plan. And those are things that we can talk about a little bit more this, this morning if, if we get into it. But the type of planning that you do certainly would would vary based on the size of the estate. So again, uh, using Bill Gates as an example, he's obviously got more money than than the rest of us, and his estate plan is therefore going to look different than the majority of estate plans that we're going to do for average people. But average people still have 
money. They still have property. They still have goals and concerns about what they want to do with it and who they want to leave it to. And so we certainly would recommend that if those are important concerns for you, that you do an estate plan to make sure that they're addressed properly and your wishes are carried out the way that you want them to be. And again, you can join the conversation if you have some questions for Jeremy, 454-1366. Now, Jeremy, so what happens if someone doesn't have an estate plan? Well, this is, a, this is a situation that we see pretty often, unfortunately. And I think a lot of times it's not intended. It's just that a lot of people assume that, well, I've always got time, right? You know, none of us likes to think about the fact that maybe uh, I won't be able to do this tomorrow. Uh, but that's the reality. And so when someone does not have an estate plan, there are actual laws that come into place. The state of Virginia and every other state in the country has laws that address those types of situations. If somebody becomes incapacitated and has never done an estate plan, in that situation, the laws of Virginia provide a judicial means of solving the problem. And essentially, this is litigation. So what happens is if I became incapacitated tomorrow and I didn't have anything in place, didn't have a plan done, then someone else, usually a family member, could go to court and could essentially uh, petition a judge to determine that I am incapacitated and I can't manage my own affairs anymore and could then ask the judge to make that person the guardian or conservator over my affairs. Now, we distinguish under Virginia law as guardian is put in charge of someone's medical decision-making, personal decision-making, and a conservator is put in charge of someone's financial decision-making. And so that process is judicial. Uh, it has to go through the court. It looks and feels a lot like litigation. So that's typically something that, as an estate planning attorney, we're always trying to avoid. Uh, we, we appreciate our, our fellow uh, members of the bar who do litigation, but all the same, we'd prefer that our clients don't have to see them if we can help them avoid it. And so this is a situation where the basically the laws of Virginia direct that the court make the determination of incapacity and then the appointment of someone to manage the affairs of the person that's incapacitated. Now, the other situation that comes up or the other big issue that we're trying to address when we do an estate plan, of course, is what happens at death. Uh, so that's a second issue. And in the situation where someone's never done an estate plan and that person passes away and that person has property, the laws of Virginia provide that the property is going to go to that person's nearest living blood relative, and these are called laws of intestacy. And essentially what these laws provide is that if somebody is married but has no children, the property goes to the spouse. If they're not married but they do have children, the property would go to the children. If we don't have a spouse, we don't have children, we go to parents, and we get out to siblings. and, aunts and aunts. There's a statute mm -hmm. that basically addresses and goes down the list. So if you've ever seen a movie where suddenly the um, long-lost uncle passes away and now the main character is a wealthy millionaire, that's potentially one way that that could happen uh, under laws of intestacy. What if there are no living relatives? If there are no living relatives, in a situation like that, the, the state does provide that the money essentially goes to the state to be held in trust until we find a, a, a relative. Okay. So uh, there's... Uh, some some situations where essentially the money ends up in the in the hands of the state because there is no living relative that we were able to find. How long will the state hold that money looking for a possible relative? Is, is there a length of time that they're going to hold on to that money? Mm -hmm. Well, typically there's going to, if there is 
value in the estate? In other words, if the person who passed away did have some some significant wealth, then there's going to be an incentive for uh, typically another individual in the community, a lawyer in the community, or uh, a, a friend of the person that passed away to take responsibility for finding that nearest living blood relative and making sure that the money gets distributed. If there's just nobody we can find, then my understanding is it can be held in perpetuity by the state. Okay. And when should you do your estate planning? Well, again, do it while you're able to do it. Okay. Uh, Anytime, we, even you mentioned, even if you're in college. Yeah, even in college. I think there's situations where uh, people go to school and they get sick. Uh, they, you know, 18-year-olds aren't necessarily known for making the wisest of decisions uh, in terms of their personal care sometimes. So they, they do dumb things and they get injured. And as a result, they may need someone else to step in and manage their affairs. And so those are certainly issues to make sure are addressed whenever you're able to address them. Because again, if you don't address them, there are legal processes that will address the issues, but those are going to be costly and they're going to usually involve the courts and they're best avoided if you can. And not only that, but you don't know if you're going to get the plan that you wanted if it plays itself out that way. So now, do you have to keep updating it? Say, you know, you do when do one when you're in college, and then you get married. Mm-hmm. So it's something you probably have to keep updating as your status keeps changing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, life changes, uh, and your plan is not going to be static. It's going to develop and grow just like you will. And so, when you're in college and you are thinking about potentially being incapacitated, you're probably going to name a parent to be the person that's involved if something happens to you. But of course, if you get married a few years later, you probably would prefer to have your spouse involved in making those decisions, and that would require updating your plan to, to adjust it. And so, uh, and then again, as you get older, the, the big milestones that most people think about updating the estate plan, and these are, these are good times to think about it, uh, are typically when you have a, a birth in the family, a death in the family, or a marriage. And those are all events that will have some legal significance as far as your estate plan is concerned. And so those are good times to consider what your plan is and whether you want to update it. But our encouragement would, of course, be to do it while you're able to do it and make sure you're proactive and not reactive in terms of doing your estate plan. Sure. And so what are some options for someone who wants to avoid uh, these results of doing nothing? Well, we've already mentioned one, and it's a will, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the one I think most of us immediately think about. That's the first, most obvious one. We've seen a movie. We've seen a TV show. We have some idea of how this this works. You sign a legal document, and that legal document provides that in the event of your death, you want your property to be distributed to these people, and that will be legally effective in the state of Virginia as long as when you execute it, it meets the formalities. So wills have to be witnessed, they have to be notarized, they have to meet certain requirements in order for them to be given legal effect upon your death. But assuming that the document that's executed does those things, then that's one way that you can direct what would happen with your property. There are other ways that we may or may not uh, be as aware of, but they actually do the same thing. Uh, One of those is a beneficiary designation. Uh, Another way that a lot of us own property is as a joint owner with someone else. If you own property with someone else as a joint owner, that's also going to have consequences for how that property passes upon your death. Uh, But those are all available options. 
The other option is a trust. And so trusts and wills are in some ways substitutes for each other. Uh, you can do a will that contains all of your instructions about what you want to have happen with your property after you're gone, or you could do a trust that contains those instructions. The will, if that's the route you choose to go, is going to go through this process called probate. Uh, a trust would not go through probate, and we can talk about probate if you want to get into that. I think um, there's a lot of advantages of a trust over a will, primarily related to the fact that the trust does not have to go through the probate process as the will does. What exactly is a living will? So a living will is, it's, it's a good question actually, a living will is addressing a situation obviously before death. Mm -hmm. And so we think of a will as addressing what's to happen with our property after we're gone. A living will is a provision that you can include in what's called an advanced medical directive. And under Virginia law, an advanced medical directive is one of those incapacity planning tools, and it's a way for you to give someone legal authority to make medical or healthcare decisions for you while you uh, are unable to make those decisions for yourself. The living will is a provision that you can include within your advanced directive that says, in the event that I can't, it's not just that I can't make my own decisions, but if I'm in a situation where I have a terminal condition, and my life is only being sustained through the use of artificial machines like a ventilator, respirator, feeding tube, I direct that in that circumstance, under that situation, the machines be turned off and nature takes its course. And so that's something that a lot of people do include when they do an advanced directive. And it's a way for you to basically make that decision for yourself instead of leaving it up to someone else. So if you think about an advanced directive where you are delegating authority to someone else to make those medical decisions. You're saying, if I have dementia someday or I had a stroke and I'm laying in a hospital bed, I want this person to be able to make all my medical decisions for me. With the living will, you're effectively making that one particular decision for yourself, that end-of-life decision. And it really is very specific to uh, being completely incapacitated and your uh, brain and other organs only being... Uh, Continue, your body only being kept alive through the use of these artificial machines. Okay. You can join the conversation, and our phone number is 454-1366. We are talking with Jeremy Pryor, and we're talking about wills. Let's uh, dive into that a little more deeper. How does a will work? So we said a minute ago, a will is a legal document that someone can sign that says, I want my property to go to whoever. You, you name the, the beneficiaries that you want to name in the, in the document. The most important thing to understand about that will, though, is that it is only going to control assets that are titled in your name alone at the time of your death. The will is not going to control those assets that you've put a beneficiary designation on. The will is not going to control those assets that you own with someone else as a joint owner. And the will is not going to control anything that you may have put into a trust while you were alive. So the will is going to only control those very specific things that upon your death are in your name. So if your house is in your name or if your, uh, your bank account is just in your name, it's not a joint account, it's not got a beneficiary designation on it, those are the assets that the will is actually going to control upon your death. And uh, the way that the will gets actually administered is under this court system called probate. And effectively what happens is, you know, if you do a will before you pass away 
and it meets all the formalities under Virginia law, then upon your death, it does not just automatically transfer your property. It's not just this magical, oh, now it all goes to these people. Instead, what happens is someone actually takes that will down to the courthouse. It gets put on public record. It's given to the clerk and it's admitted to probate. And the clerk is then going to send the person that presents the will, which is often uh, the individual who's named in the document as the executor. That person is going to be sent by the clerk of the court to the commissioner of the court. And the commissioner is going to then supervise this person who is responsible for distributing the property that's supposed to be distributed under the will. And so this whole process begins with the document being taken to the courthouse, the clerk looking it over, making sure that it meets the correct requirements, admitting it to probate. Then this person is given legal authority to basically have control over all of the deceased person's property, not for taking it for himself, obviously, but for purposes of actually carrying out the instructions in the will. So the will says, distribute all my property to my three kids. The person who's named as the executor goes to the courthouse, gets the authority to basically go to the bank and take control over all the assets that belong to the deceased person. But again, not for his own benefit, but for purposes of collecting the assets, paying any expenses that may be due, paying any final costs, paying any taxes that may be due, and then ultimately distributing that property to the persons that are named as the beneficiaries in the, in the document. Can I do my own will? You can. Or uh, would you suggest that I do my own will? Well, two, di- two different <laughs> questions. So, yes, you can do your own will. Under Virginia law, there is, uh, there is plenty of uh, uh, support for doing your own will. The, the key to doing your own will is really meeting those formalities. And those are not hard to meet in one sense, but they're tricky and you need to know what you're doing to make sure that you don't miss anything so that at the time that someone takes it to the courthouse and presents it to the clerk and the clerk reviews the document to make sure that it actually meets all those formalities, if there's anything missing, then we've got a problem. And there's ways to potentially get around some of the problems, but they're going to be costly and expensive and time-consuming and things that you would have been uh, well advised to make sure that you had those things taken care of beforehand because now there's no way to get around it. So, yes, you can do your own will, but we would probably caution you uh, and suggest that you uh, be very careful in doing that, uh, just like you can do your, you know, you can change the transmission in your car if you want to. Uh, there are certain uh, people that enjoy doing things themselves and they're self-starters and, and they do the research and they read the manuals and they look at the tools and they do it and that's great. Uh, certainly that's something that you can take on if you really want to. Uh, I think most of us would prefer to hire someone else to assist and make it a little easier on ourselves. Sure. Save us the hassle, mm-hmm. maybe, and all the heartaches and all that. Well, we're getting ready to come up to a hard break sure. at 930 in the news. Uh, this is really an interesting topic. You can join the conversation if you have any questions. Our phone number is 454 454-1366. We are talking with attorney Jeremy Pryor. He's located in Fredericksburg as well as the uh, West End. And this is pretty exciting. Good. Definitely. And we'll talk to you on the other side of the half hour. You're great. And we'll be back. Talk to you soon.
You've been listening to Raising the Bar, Greater Richmond's premier law talk radio show. Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366. Now, back to Raising the Bar. Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366. Welcome back. This is Raising the Bar each Wednesday morning starting at 9 o'clock from 9 until 10. And we've had a wonderful conversation today with Attorney Jeremy Pryor. Uh, We've been talking about wills and Uh, talking about everybody needs a will no matter what age uh, you are. You always need to have a will in place just in case the unfortunate happens. And we're going to talk a little bit this half hour about probate. Jeremy, can you lay the foundation and explain to us exactly what probate is? Sure. So probate is the judicial oversight of the administration of the will. So the Again, the will, this legal document that plans for how your property is to be distributed doesn't just happen. And probate basically consists of this individual who's appointed by the, under the terms of the will and approved by the court, known as an executor, who's given legal authority to actually transfer all of the property to the beneficiaries. But he does that under the supervision and the oversight of the local court. So every jurisdiction in Virginia, every city, every county, has its own circuit court, and the circuit court has a probate division, and the probate office, the clerk of the probate court, uh, is going to then basically supervise this person, but actually delegates the authority day-to-day or most of the uh, details of the administration oversight to this individual called the commissioner of accounts. And this is a lawyer in the jurisdiction who basically is tasked with reviewing the work that the executor is doing to make sure that he's actually doing it properly, make sure that he's not uh, stealing any money for himself, make sure that he's paying all the bills and expenses that are needed to be paid, and really accounting down to the penny for all the money that's in the estate of the deceased person to make sure that what's supposed to get to the beneficiaries actually gets to the beneficiaries. And it's kind of designed to be this back and forth discussion between the executor, who's the person who's chosen by the deceased individual to carry out the plan, and the commissioner who's then given the oversight responsibility. They have to coordinate and communicate to make sure that the commissioner gets the information he needs to properly supervise the uh, executor. I should say uh, probate is uh, cost money, uh, so the clerk gets paid uh, when the will is put to record. There is uh, a probate tax in Virginia. It's relatively minor, but we do have a probate tax. We also have uh, fees that are paid to the clerk and to the commissioner. And we have uh, fees that get paid to the executor for doing the work of actually administering the will. So there is money involved in this process. And there's also time. So it's it's designed to, again, be this back and forth interaction and, and that just lends itself to kind of stretching out the process. And now nobody actually gets any money 
from the estate until the very end. So once we get to that last point of the administration and we've made sure everybody's paid, we've made sure everything is taken care of, that's when actually the beneficiaries get their checks. That process can take usually somewhere between nine months to two years. That's pretty common. Wow, I didn't realize it was that long. Could yeah. take up to two years. And it's public. So again, everything goes on public record with probate. Uh, the, the will is put to record just like a deed is put to record. Uh, if you have family members that aren't real thrilled about your plan, they have an opportunity to come and contest your will and say, we don't think this is, you know, legitimate for some reason. Uh, and it's also, uh, again, I think that the, the main frustrations that we hear as, as estate planning and estate administration attorneys to deal with probate have to do with the amount of money that it costs, the amount of time that it takes, and the nature of the system, which, again, is is very legal and, and, and very detail-oriented. And so for non-professional lawyers to try and navigate the system on their own is often difficult and, and tedious, and they, they don't find it very enjoyable of an experience. And uh, we do have a caller oh, right now. Great. Douglas is on the line. He wants to talk about updating an old will. Douglas, are you there? I'm here. Good morning. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, Sarah, my question is this. My wife and I have uh, both got wheels. The wheels are quite old, probably 20 years or more. And if you do a new wheel, you're, up, you're putting a new date on it, but you're not changing anything. But uh, I want to leave grandchildren that we've got now. I want to get, leave them money when I pass away. But my wife could give them the money, but you're limited to, to uh, I don't know, a small amount of money that there's no taxes involved. I want to leave them an amount of money that I don't want them to have to pay taxes on. Mm-hmm. So can we just make a change to my will just to specify the names and the amount of the grandchildren to get the money? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So absolutely, you can you can update your will to leave a certain amount of money to your to your grandchildren. You could do that at any time. It would require actually making a legal update, though. So that's that's going to look like either a complete, you know, revoking of your old will and executing a new will. That's one way you could accomplish that. Uh, you can also amend your will. We have a. a fancy legal word for that called a codicil. Uh, you could do a codicil to your will uh, and you could include those provisions. Uh, you're right to, men- to mention or point out that you also could just make the gifts while you're alive. You could do that right now. Uh, that's something that we would uh, want to make sure you are aware of all the consequences associated with doing that. Namely, once you give it away, it's gone and, and that's an important Sometimes people give it to kids, not suggesting this is your situation, Douglas, but sometimes people will give their money away to kids thinking that the kids might be able to give it back if they really needed it back someday. We would be very cautious about that. But in terms of giving some money to your grandkids, yes, you could do that. We do have, uh, you also mentioned taxes. There are no estate taxes in Virginia unless you have an estate under current law that's worth more than about $11 million dollars. And as far as the gift taxes are concerned, uh, if you want to give money away this year, the IRS has a uh, gift tax exclusion, an annual gift tax exclusion amount, which is currently $15,000 per person. So if the gifts that you're contemplating are less than $15,000 per person uh, to each of your grandkids, you could do that without having to report that gift to 
the IRS. Okay. That's good. Well, you know, I, uh, the, the money, everything goes to, to my wife if I pass away. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, what I want to do is uh, we everything goes to the other person, but she has money and I have money. Mm-hmm. She has one child from a previous marriage. Mm-hmm. When she passes away, her money, as we were calling it, mm-hmm. uh, goes to uh, him. Mm-hmm. My money, I don't want to give it to grandchildren now. Because my wife may need that in her old age. Sure, right. But by having it, uh, that uh, to go ahead and give them the money now from the wheel, she's got enough money to take care of herself in in her old age. That's right. But I want to give the money right right now. I'd rather it be done at the time of uh, my death. And I think that's a smart way to do it, uh, given especially what you mentioning about uh, having a blended family and. That gets uh, very tricky, very, very fast, and making sure that whatever you might leave to each other is sufficient for the other's needs, and then also trying to make sure that when you're both gone, money goes to uh, children from both of your relationships. That's uh, there's there's ways that you can do that, but uh, that those are situations that we would recommend you probably talk to us or someone like us who can help make sure that what you want to have happen and achieve is actually what will happen. Uh, a lot of people right. try to do that by just uh, telling somebody, this is what I want. And unfortunately we can tell you a lot of sad stories about people who had plans where they just told somebody to do something after they were gone. And the person that they asked to do it decided after that person was deceased that they weren't going to do it. And that obviously was not the, uh, the intended plan of the individual who was trying to make it. Right. Well, I, I plan on going to a uh, lawyer, but uh, turned the program on and y'all were talking about it. And I thought, well, I'll just, just talk to the gentleman with Sal because what he said so far made a lot of sense to me. And I didn't know exactly what to do because I thought about taking my money, if you will, mm-hmm. and could open an account, put that amount of money in it and put in my name and chi- the grandchild's name, too. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when I'm gone, they don't have to do anything. Go down there and close the account and get the money. But well, they won't have to pay taxes. That's the thing. I hate taxes mm-hmm. for what money we manage to save to pass it on to somebody. Just for all. Well, I, I, I think you're wise to, to, to talk to a lawyer about the best way to achieve that. And it's interesting what you just mentioned as far as putting your money into uh, an account with uh, with the grandchild's name on it and then... Uh, basically the the money would just be his after your passing. That's, uh, that's essentially what we call joint ownership. That is joint ownership. And the way that that works is, is just as you said, if, if two people own an asset, own an account, or own a piece of real estate together, and one of them passes away, the person that survives is now the sole owner of that asset or that account. And in general... I would just say to uh, be very, very careful with with doing something like that because as soon as you have someone else's name on an asset with you, that person owns it just as much as you do. And there's no reason that that person has to wait until you're deceased to to take the property. Uh, And it's also the case that if that person has any creditors, those creditors could come after anything he legally owns, which would now include the account with your name on it. 
And if you have a situation with this person who he or, he or she were, get, were to get divorced at some point in the future, well, the separating spouse is entitled to a portion of whatever he or she owns, which would now include that account as well. So there are some advantages to, to joint ownership in terms of it does offer this very convenient, easy way to leave property to someone else after you're gone. But in general, I don't recommend it. Uh, not saying I never recommend it, but in general, I don't recommend it because of all these other drawbacks that, that come with it. Thank you so much, Douglas, for calling. Yeah, and I appreciate you uh, uh, taking my call, and thanks a million for, for the information. All right. Have a nice day. Thanks, Douglas. Well, he, that leads us to our next question. That was a wonderful uh, question that he asked. We're talking about uh, joint ownership now. Uh, can you just explain a little bit more about that? Absolutely. Uh, so as Douglas just mentioned, uh, joint ownership is two or more people owning the same thing. So a lot of times we, you'll see this most commonly with real estate and particularly real estate that's owned by spouses, married couples, they'll own their house together. And in general, uh, the way joint ownership works is when one of the owners passes away, the survivor still owns that asset. And so there's no probate. We talked about a will. We talked about how in order for property that's passing through the will to pass to the persons that are supposed to receive it, we have to go through the court system. When two people own something as joint owners, when one dies, that property does not have to go through probate. And another important thing to keep in mind with joint ownership is because it does not pass through the probate system, it does not pass under the will. And therefore, if your joint owner and your uh, will conflict, in other words, if you had a provision in your will that said, I want my house after my death to be available to my spouse to live in as long as he or she survives me, but upon his or her death, I want that property to go to our you know, my kids from my first marriage, something like that. And you have that provision in your will, but you in fact own that property with your spouse. Upon your death, the provision in your will is not going to have any legal effect. And the reason for that is that you own that property jointly with the other person. And that's going to control how that property passes upon your death. It's going to be the survivor's property, regardless of what your will says. And so this is one of those areas where I think a lot of people uh, either don't know or, or perhaps they don't get good legal advice in terms of doing their estate plan because it's not uncommon for us to see situations where someone comes in after a death and says, well, the will says I'm supposed to be able to have this house, but it's not working out that way. And we look at the plan that was done and obviously there wasn't, uh, you know, knowledgeable or informed counsel involved in the situation because the, the person is not going to get the plan's not going to work the way that it was intended to work. And so uh, you want to be careful with joint ownership. And the other reasons that you want to be careful have to do with some of the things that I just mentioned as well. When you put somebody's name on an account or you add somebody's name to a, a deed, you are not just doing an estate plan. You are actually making them an owner with you. And there's a whole host of risks that come with that. Typically, when you're married to someone, hopefully you know them well enough, you trust them enough that those risks are minimal and you don't really have to worry about it. But adding a brother's name to a deed or adding a child's name to a deed, there's a whole lot of potential consequences that come with it. And so we would be very cautious before advising you to, to use that for your estate plan. Uh, it's fine if you want to own the property with the other person, 
But if you're just looking for an easy and convenient way to leave somebody else property, there's there's better ways to do that. Sure. And so in your seminars, you've uh, told stories about uh, some of the potential problems, as you just mentioned, of using joint, joint ownership. Uh, you used an example in your seminar about uh, the Brady Bunch, mm. you know, a mm-hmm. blended family. Could mm-hmm. you repeat that again? Well, sure. Uh, so I think that's a, a good one to illustrate some of the issues we were just discussing. So you all, hopefully the audience remembers the Brady Bunch, uh, <laughs> uh, famous TV sitcom from the 70s, and uh, blended family, uh, three three boys from his side, three girls from her side. And uh, we'll just assume that when they get married, uh, he has the house and he brings that house into the relationship. And so he uh, takes the house that was his house that he owned before he married uh, his second wife, and he puts it into both of their names. And he then decides that uh, he wants to do uh, something with that house other than leave it to her when he passes away. So he's got his kids from his first marriage. Perhaps he decides he wants to make sure that his kids get that house because it was his family house before before they got married. And uh, he goes to a lawyer and he talks to a lawyer about making that happen. And if he has already put that house that was originally just his into the name of him and his second wife, then he's already done his estate plan. And if he wants to change it at that point, uh, it would be up to his wife, Carol, to decide whether she was willing to accommodate that change. In other words, another way to think about joint ownership is that it's an irrevocable estate plan. You think about, uh, well, and Douglas is a good example. He's saying, well, I'm thinking I want to update my will. I want to make some changes. I want to leave some money to my grandkids now. Well, he can still make that change. He's still got the legal authority to update his will, but he's not got legal authority or in general, we don't have legal authority to make changes to a plan that involves joint ownership unless we get the other person's permission. Uh, And so that's a situation where we do sometimes uh, run into people that are surprised because they don't realize that that's what they've done by putting someone else's name. They they still think of it as their house. They added that person's name as a convenience or they Mm -hmm. think of it as their account. They added that person's name as a convenience just so that person would be able to write checks and they don't recognize or understand that, well, no, in fact, if you now want to change how that asset is going to pass upon your death. It's not just up to you anymore. It's now up to you, but you have to get the permission of the person whose name is on the asset. Sure. Are there any other ways to avoid probate besides uh, joint ownership? There are two, uh, and we'll try to get to both of them if we have time this morning. But the one that I think is probably the most familiar to uh, our listeners is beneficiary designations. And so if you've ever had a life insurance policy, if you've ever had a 401k or an IRA and you filled out a beneficiary designation form, what you've done is you've essentially said, upon my death, I am directing that whatever property or asset is still in my name in this account is to go to the person that I name as the beneficiary. And that individual upon your death is not going to have to go through probate in order to get that account or to get that death benefit if we're talking about life insurance. Instead, all that needs to happen typically is that person provides proof of your death, death certificate, and provides proof of his or her identification. And then the institution, the insurance company, or the 
financial institution just writes the check to the person that's named as the beneficiary. And so these are very popular for that reason. Again, you think about a will and probate and the expense and the time and all of that. Well, it's much more convenient and simpler. And the people that you want to receive the money don't have to wait as long if they're named as beneficiaries on your accounts. And under the laws in Virginia today, you can put a beneficiary designation on just about every account. Uh, so you can put it on your life insurance. You can add it to your bank accounts. You can actually put a beneficiary designation on your car down at the DMV if you want to do that. You can do a uh, beneficiary designation by deed for real estate. And so there's a lot of potentially it's possible to leave all of your property to the persons you want to leave it to using beneficiary designations. And they work really well, except they don't do well with contingencies. And so here's situations that we typically run into where beneficiary designations cause a problem. And those are situations where perhaps the person that was named as the beneficiary predeceases you unexpectedly. So you named your kids as your beneficiaries expecting they would all survive you and unfortunately one of them does not. Well, if you don't update your beneficiary designation after that occurs, where's the money that was supposed to go to that deceased child now going to go? That's a hard question to answer. And the reason it's a hard question to answer is that it's really going to be determined by the fine print under the terms of the agreement that you had with the institution. So let's just take life, life insurance as an example. You filled out a beneficiary designation form. You named your three children as the beneficiaries of your insurance money, and one of them unexpectedly predeceases you. Well, somewhere in that life insurance declarations policy booklet that you got when you bought the policy, there is an answer to that question, and it directs usually the property to go one of three places. Sometimes it would say, give it to the descendants of the person that predeceases you. So sometimes it might go to the grandchildren. Sometimes it says, give it to the other named beneficiaries. So if there were three kids that were all named and only two of them survived, now we split it 50-50 instead of three ways. And sometimes it says, well, put it back into the estate of the person that owned the policy. So if it was my life insurance and I named three kids and one of them predeceases me, then that share that was supposed to go to that third child now comes back into my estate. Well, that means it's now controlled by my will. And if my will says it was everything's to be divided between the three kids, now that one third that was supposed to go to the deceased child comes back into my estate. It's divided three ways because that's what my will says. And now we end up with a unexpected plan or an unforeseen estate plan. And so uh, that's a, that's an example of of how beneficiary designations uh, can can always don't always work the way we want them to, uh, and so the moral of the story is simply if you're going to use beneficiary designations to do your estate plan, make sure that you keep them up to date. Make sure that if something changes in your family situation that uh, requires an update to that beneficiary designation, that you're on top of it as quickly as possible. And we are talking with Attorney Jeremy Pryor. Uh, we only have a few more minutes left. Jeremy, how can folks get in touch with you? Well, we uh, are in, in a lot of different cities in Virginia. So Virginia Beach, Williamsburg, Fredericksburg, Richmond. Uh, the easiest way is probably to go to our website, which is carolblanton.com. And Carol is a little bit of an unusual spelling, C-A-R-R-E-L-L-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. And uh, you can find all of our contact information there. We have about 15 attorneys uh, through all four offices throughout the state. And uh, we do focus on estate planning. So these are the issues that we really uh, 
spend most of our time dealing with and thinking about, and uh, we'd all be happy to assist with estate planning needs. Sure, and we only have a few more minutes left, but let's briefly talk about what is power of attorney and why it's so important. So at the very beginning, we said that estate planning is fundamentally addressing two concerns. One is what happens at death, and we've talked about different ways that you can choose to address that concern using a will, using joint ownership, using a beneficiary designation. We can also talk about a trust if we have enough time. Uh, As far as the other big concern of estate planning, which is planning for incapacity, we haven't really touched on that too much. We did mention advanced medical directives and living wills, but how do we give someone legal authority to manage our financial affairs? How do we give someone legal authority to make legal decisions for us in the event that we're unable to make them for ourselves someday? Well, the most common way that we can do this is using what's called a general durable power of attorney. Virginia actually updated its power of attorney law not all that long ago. Uh, I think it was 2010 when we adopted the provisions of the Uniform Power of Attorney Act. We adopted our own state version of that Uniform Act. And this is basically a legal document that gives someone else authority to act in your name if and when you're unable to act in your own name. And it's pretty simple and straightforward. You are basically giving someone else legal authority to act for you. And so if um, you sign one of these and you've given that authority to someone else, then if you're unable to get to your bank, you're unable to pay your bills, you're unable to enter into contracts or to do all the things that you typically just do day to day, this person who's given that authority through this legal document would be able to do those things for you. I often call this the most important estate planning document that I think everybody needs and also the most dangerous estate planning document that I think everybody needs. The reason it's so important is that if you don't have something in place to give someone else legal authority to act for you and you become incapacitated, the only way that someone can get that authority is to go to court and become your conservator. And that is litigation. That takes time. That's expensive. Uh, That is not the way that anybody would want to deal with this issue. Uh, Dangerous because you're giving someone legal authority to act for you. And this person is going to have that authority uh, and could potentially misuse it. And that could be a disaster. So be very cautious and make sure you trust the person you name as your agent. Sure. Really quick. Mm -hmm. Why should I hire a lawyer instead of doing uh, my will on legal Zoom? Well, that's probably a bit more than I can answer in 30 (laughs) seconds. But what I would say is that you don't know what you don't know. And that's really important when you're doing these types of things. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you. Appreciate being here.